Dear Father, we are thankful for the record that you provided to us in Genesis through the prophet Moses. We thank you that uh, we get to learn from these words that were given first to the Jews and uh, now to us. We pray that we are faithful to observe these records in their context, but that we also ascertain the spiritual importance by the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray uh, that we would understand the centrality of the gospel, even in passages where it appears to be absent. We pray that we always keep that forefront in our minds so that we not fall into the errors such as they fell into at Babel. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may be seated. And we are in our last chapter that we're going to tackle in Genesis until next year. We are in Genesis chapter 11, and we're asking the question, who can save us? The Babel event is man's first attempt after the flood to declare for himself who will save him. Unfortunately, they come to the wrong answer and they say that we will save ourselves. So we begin with our main point that man tends towards rebellion, specifically rebellion against God. You see, grace is something that's unnatural to us. We resist it. We would say, God, no, I'll do it myself. I'll do the 90%, and then what I can't do myself, I'll let you do the other 10%. No, we can't even have it so that God is doing 99%, and we are doing 1%. God does 100% of the saving. Anything less than that is not helping God out, it's diminishing his glory. And this is what those at Babel are doing. They are diminishing God's glory in their rebellion. So man tends towards rebellion, but his efforts are all in vain. Man apart from God is doomed to destruction, both in this world and in the world to come. But the righteous will be saved. And this is not the self-righteous. This is those who have taken on the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Back then, looking forward to the promised seed that had been promised to Eve, promised through Shem, would be promised through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, all the way down to Emmanuel. We are tracing the seed line. But this morning we focus in on what caused this rebellion in Babel. Why was it wrong? What were they doing? And next week we will look at how God settled the issue. So we'll look at how man concentrated themselves together, how they collaborated in rebellion against God, and how they built a tower to worship man and to worship the creator, or the creation instead of the creator. We come now to Genesis 11, and it is a recapitulation of what has happened already. This is not after the table of nations, this comes before the table of nations. It explains why the 70 nations that came out of Babel were scattered in the first place. Remember, chapter 10 was a fulfillment of the prophecies in chapter 9. The text naturally moved from prophecy to fulfillment and now goes backwards just a bit to fill in some of the details so that we not think man was faithful in following God, but that God was faithful to his word. So we start with their concentration. We see that man collects himself in an effort to save himself against God. Genesis 11, 1, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Once again, this is before the events of chapter 10. Remember in 1025 that there was a son named Peleg, and in his days the earth was divided. We looked at various reasons why this wouldn't have to do with dividing of the continents. That would have already happened at the flood, but that this is a division of the languages, and this is a division of the nations. More than three times that is repeated in chapter 10, that the People were divided by their language, by their tribe, by their, by their nations, and by the land. 
And in dating, when Peleg would have been born in commemoration of this event in chapter 11, we see that if Peleg was born 101 years after the flood, then the Babel event would have occurred before 100 years or 101 years after the flood. So this is in the first 100 years of man living on this world after the flood. It does not take long at all for man to devolve into degeneration. Now, it might seem a little redundant here. Man was using the same language and the same words. Moses, the excellent writer that he is, is foreshadowing the events to come. In fact, Genesis 11, 1 through 9 is a very poetic section, constantly even choosing words that repeat the consonants B and L and M and P, those labial consonants that, that uh, end with the declaration of the confusion at Babel. This word for language is literally the Hebrew word lip. It's not the normal word for tongue. It's used especially for borders or edges. A lip is the border or edge around your mouth. It is a word that can mean language, but I think he is tipping his hat to the idea of the borders, the distinction between people that are going to come out of their rebellion. Because they refuse to spread around the world, God is going to draw the borders. Here they are drawing their borders with their language. This word for words, devarim, isn't so much the word for vocabulary, though it has the sense of vocabulary words. They're using the same vocabulary. They're using the same language and grammatical scheme. But this word for devarim is, has a much wider lexical field. It can mean agreement on one thing. It's not just linguistic commonality, but it is the commonality of activity and pursuit. They were of the same borders, and they were of the same matter and the same affair. They were united in their language, language which God created even from the very beginning of man's existence for communion with God and for communion with one another. Animals do not have the faculty of language. This is not a creation matter. This is a creator matter. Language belongs to the creator. We are created in the image of God, and we are given that part of his image, the ability to communicate first with him and then with one another. And here, mankind chooses to use this image of God to rebel against God, to bring themselves together on the basis of the ideas that they can create and communicate with each other. And the first thing they choose to do is to move east. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. Now you might look at a map and say Shinar is a little south. In fact, it's more south than it is east. Why doesn't Moses say southeast? Well, east encapsulates south, it encapsulates north, anything east of their position, why does he choose then to say east when he could have chosen to say south or southeast? Well, again, possibly because Moses is just an excellent writer. Using east would remind the Jews of what they had just read about what had occurred east. There's probably two sides to this, both what the people going to Babel thought, and then how God would interpret it. In Genesis 2.8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed man whom he had formed. When God created a paradise, when he created a place for man to rule over this earth, he put it in the east, and then he put man in it. After the flood, we saw that man was already moving towards rebellion. We saw this in the episode with Ham and Noah. And here, man goes east to establish for himself a Garden of Eden. 
he moves east to establish for himself a throne over this world. And we see that he is longing for the world that once was, the world that was destroyed. He begins to name everything around him for the world that God destroyed. We'll remember that in the Garden of Eden, there were four rivers. One was the Tigris and one was the Euphrates. And these flowed east of Assyria. These are the names also of the locations where Nimrod settled. Not because they are the same places, the world that once was, was destroyed by the flood. Peter tells us as much. In fact, all of these rivers branched out of one singular river that came out of the center of Eden, which also gives us a hint that Eden was probably a mountain. No, these are not the rivers from Eden, but man is recreating for himself a paradise and he is leaving God out of it. These rivers flowed out of Eden. They divided and became four rivers. This is not the topography of Mesopotamia. We also remember that Canaan's children are named after some of the lands. The name of the first river was Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah. Havilah was the name of one of Canaan's sons. And there, there was gold. The gold of the land was good, and the bdellium and the onyx stone were there too. Worldly riches. But also, when God drove man out of the Eden, he didn't drive him out west, he drove him out east. God drove the man out east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. In seeking to create a paradise for themselves, they instead became more like Cain. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. He settled in the land of Nod, which is, I think, not the best translation. It's the land of wandering. Nod is the Hebrew word for wandering. He settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and Cain built a city. And he called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. We'll see as Moses goes along that he's constantly relating this back not to God's creation of Eden, though that may have been the intentions of those from Babel, but he relates it back instead to the rebellion of Cain. Just like Cain these men chose their way instead of God's way. And eventually they became wanderers instead of settled. Now they moved into what's called an alluvial plain. After the flood, this would have made up, or there would have been many alluvial plains that came from water runoff coming off of mountains, filling valleys with silt and all sorts of very nutritious ground as well as filling it with all sorts of gold and other gems. They found a plain that was the land of Shinar and settled there. Now the word for plain is distinct in Hebrew from the word for valley. Sometimes these are interchanged in the English language, even the English Bible. Sometimes it'll say the valley of Shinar. Plain is much better here because in Hebrew this has the sense of fertile soil. There are no mountains directly that would make this a valley. This is a plain, a plain of Shinar, and it is filled with alluvial soil, deposited there directly from the flood. Here's a brief description of alluvial soil. Alluvial soils are the soils deposited by surface water, so they are found commonly among rivers, floodplains, and deltas, such as the Nile Delta. Alluvial soil is one of the most fertile soils for cultivation. Further, it removes nutrients and other sediments from the flowing water, thus improving the water quality downstream. Alluvial soils are considered the best for agriculture. They respond well to various irrigation systems, including well and tube well systems. They are good for various crops, including rice, wheat, sugarcane, tobacco, maize, oil seeds, vegetables, and fruits, everything man needs. 
It is essentially a Garden of Eden. Well, this alluvial plain became the eastern wing of what we know as the Fertile Crescent, the cradle of civilization, the birthplace of humanity. Only those who gave them these titles forgot that there was a flood that was, uh, or that men came from all over the world before the flood. But here in the recreated earth, this was the cradle of civilization. This is where civilization began once again in these alluvial plains where man could create for himself some sort of utopia, the lands of Egypt, the lands of Canaan, the lands of Mesopotamia, where Ham's children first settled. And you can see this white portion here, that it's not just an alluvial plain settled by the flood, but it's also filled with rivers. So it will continue to replenish itself. It will continue and it will give access to the Persian Gulf where sea trade can happen. This is the ideal place in all of the world to establish a one world government. And that's exactly what man decided to do. But notice as well this alluvial soil generally has a low content of nitrogen they contain a good amount of alkalites, potash, and phosphoric acid. A large part of the global supply of tin ore comes from the alluvial soils. In some regions of the world, the alluvial deposits contain gold, platinum, and gemstones. And this is one of those areas. In fact, these gems and such came from the mountains rising out of the flood and uh, pouring down off of those mountains, Neuro-Altaic mountains, into these plains, filling the land of Babylon with all of the riches that it would need to build up for itself an empire and a kingdom, and to build up for man control over worldly goods. Interestingly enough, when we look at Ezekiel 28, we see that these gemstones were part of the ministry of Lucifer before the fall. When God is cursing Lucifer, he refers back to before the angelic rebellion, which was shortly before the human rebellion of Adam and Eve. We see that Lucifer had a special position. He was a cherubim anointed of God. He was probably some sort of worship leader whose purpose was to give glory to the creator. And he chose instead to take glory for himself. Then Ezekiel 28 says, the Lord God says, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, lapis, lazuli, turquoise, emerald, gold was the workmanship of your settings and sockets. On the day that you were created, they were prepared you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God, which was probably Eden. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness was found in you. And we see that the unrighteousness that was found in him came from his own pride. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Eden was not just a vegetable garden. It was also a mineral garden. All of the glory of God could be seen in his creation just from Eden. All of his creation was concentrated there. The very best that the world had to offer, God put around the throne of man. And here, when man tries to recreate his throne once again, he finds a place where he can collect all of these riches to himself, but where he can leave God out of the picture. Babel was like this in times past, and it will be like this in times future as well. We see in the book of Revelation that this 
Babylonian one world empire will reconvene. And when they do, they will become a hub of all of these worldly riches once again. In fact, in Revelation 18, we see all the merchants of the world mourning the loss of Babel because of the loss of worldly riches. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver, precious stone, pearls, fine linen, purple silk, scarlet, citron wood, ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, perfume, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, slaves, and even human lives. This is how the world saves itself, but it will end in destruction. It is rebellion against God and it cannot stand. It is futility. Well, man decides to organize himself. And once again, we see that he is abusing that portion of God's creation, which was given for fellowship. That portion of creation being his language. Man organizes himself by means of being understood one with another. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. We have two different kinds of commands in the Hebrew here. One is exhortative, to exhort someone to do something. And the other is a cohortative, to do something together. Come, let us. Let us do this together in unison. This come can have the idea of, come on, let's go. But it can also have the idea of, come here, come together. Interestingly enough, when God had given man commands after coming off the ark, he did not say come, but he said go. Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, and bring out with you everything, every living thing of all the flesh that is with you, birds and animals and creeping things that creep on the earth, so that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. God's purpose was not for man to come together but for man to spread out and to populate the whole earth. Genesis 9, 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, not fill the Shinar Valley. Now they also say, let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. Up until this point, this phrase, let us, which expresses someone's will and someone's intention, has been reserved for God and God alone. In Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image. The creator deciding to create. The creator deciding how to use the material that he has created. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let us them rule over the fish and the sea and over the birds and sky and over the cattle and every living thing and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God's intention was for man to rule on his behalf, not apart from him. Man's intention is to rule apart from God. Once again, the kingdoms of this world will say, let us. Psalm 2, 1 through 3 why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We see that on the other side of this, God sits in heaven laughing. What futility. Psalm 2 is a prophecy of the end of days. It is a prophecy of the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to take the throne from those kingdoms of the world that have decided to make their own throne on this earth, a kingdom of Satan, and the head of that kingdom will be Babel. Psalm 2, the nations which are in an uproar are organized under the future eschatological system of Babylon. God stands in heaven laughing. It is utter futility when they say, let us impose our will on God's creation.
This is a policy of pride and a policy of defiance that man began to do at Babel. This becomes the background character for the entire Bible. Everywhere from Genesis 11, actually even back to Genesis 10, moving forward to Revelation 19, Babel sits in the background as the pinnacle of rebellion against God, both in its inception and in its conclusion. Now here they say that they are going to make bricks. Well, the verb here actually isn't make. The English translators have made that make so that it's more understandable for us in English because this is a Hebrew idiom. And it's a very poetic idiom. Here they are saying, let us brick with bricks. The following phrase they are going to say, instead of burn them thoroughly, which is the sense of the word, they will say, let us burn with burning. Man's command, as they bring themselves together in rebellion against God, is done in high culture, is done with class, it's done in poetry. We've seen that before. When man rebelled against God before the flood, just seven generations, and we see man poetically rebelling against God. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. How like man to try to make his rebellion against God beautiful. Now there's something that's easily missed here in the text. They're burning their bricks. Usually, especially in primitive cultures, bricks are sun-dried. This is no primitive culture. Yes, they are fresh off the boat, but no, they are not ignorant of how to live on this earth. Noah and his sons lived in the world before with all the accumulated knowledge at their fingertips. They brought it with them on the ark. And immediately we get kilns. Kilns originated in the Mesopotamian Valley and for a very specific purpose because they had no stones or they didn't have regular access to stones. All across the earth in non-alluvial valleys, we have stone outcroppings that they were able to carve up for their use. Here they didn't. They had to make brick. But you know, they don't want their brick huts after a while to turn into this. These are probably sun-dried bricks. They wanted their tower to stand. They wanted it to last. So they burnt the bricks thoroughly. They had no intention of this city fading into history. This was the center of history. And you know it does remain the center of history. These kilns pop up again in Jan Daniel chapter 3. These Mesopotamian, Babylonian brick kilns that they used for building sturdy buildings are the same kilns that they throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in. After heating it up to seven times the heat that they would burn their bricks thoroughly with. This being the center of the world system, it's no wonder that we see this technology being taken to other parts of the world, especially after Babel is divided. In fact, how do they live in the Siberian climate as they are heading east towards the Americas? How about Korea? Coldest I've ever been was a day in Seoul when I forgot my jacket. I think it was negative 17. I never forgot my jacket after that. And in the Korean War, one of the most difficult aspects wasn't the fighting, but surviving the cold. The Koreans had a way of getting around that, a way of living in this cold climate after being sent away from Babel. 
the Mongolians and the Huns finding their way across the Asian continent and landing in the bitter cold. And mind you, this was on the rise of the Ice Age. How did they survive? They brought with them the kilns that they had made in Babel. Better, they brought with them the knowledge of these kilns. They're able to heat up a kiln and direct the air under the floor. Under their floors are piles of bricks. These bricks would also get heated and it would keep them plenty warm in the winter. In fact, up until the 1950s, which is at the time of the war, these were still widely used all around Korea. It wasn't until they started industrializing that they changed just a bit and got gas boilers to heat up their floors for them. So for 4,000 years, they were using this Babylonian technology that they brought with them in order to survive in the climates where God had sent them. It truly is the cradle of civilization. And once again, they had to burn these bricks thoroughly because they didn't have brick for stone, or they didn't have stone. They needed brick for stone. Moses had an incredible understanding of the region and of the area, probably because he was there, but also because this is God's word. God's word is not going to fail in any aspect. It makes sense, knowing the topography of the land, that there is just no stone available there. Had it been written by someone else in some other place, they may not have known this about the Babylonian Valley. Other places in the world, stone cutting was frequent. They had the capabilities, they had the technology. They weren't burning bricks because they hadn't figured out how to use stones. These people who left out of Babel and they headed across the Pacific and the Atlantic, the Indian seas, landed in Rapa Nui and built the Moai. This probably wasn't very long after Babel. They had an advanced civilization and an advanced culture and they knew how to do these things. There just wasn't stone available in the valley. Move over just a couple hundred kilometers or miles and you land in Egypt where there is plenty of stone outcroppings and you get megalithic structures like the pyramids built out of stone, not burned brick because they had stone. But in this we also see man's obstinance. He's using what is available to him He's thoroughly burning the clay so that it will last. But notice, despite all the clay they have, they don't use clay to bind their bricks together. They use tar for mortar. This has been called bitumen. We know it better as asphalt. And in the Middle East, there are asphalt pits. I found out in researching this, they're also in California, which doesn't surprise me. But this is essentially petroleum seepage through the surface. Petroleum that may have been created by the compression of all of the foliage in the earth or that uh, had been buried by the flood. Now you get tar pits coming up through these alluvial valleys. Tar, which is easy for them to use to bind together their bricks. Tar and pitch is a viscous, dark brown or black substance obtained by the destructive distillation of coal, wood, petroleum, peat, and certain other organic materials. The heating of or partial burning of wood to make charcoal yields tar as a byproduct and is an ancient method of the for the production of both tar and pitch. Sounds a lot like what we experienced in the flood. Notice that this is not the kind of pitch used beforehand by Noah when he put pitch all about the ark. That is 
not the word hamar, which is tar or pit, pitimen, but it is kafir, simply covering, not a specific resin. In fact, we don't know how to identify what kind of resin specifically Noah used to cover the ark. But this is the same kind of tar, which we see again in Genesis 14 in the battle of Sidim. The king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out. And they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim against Kedor Laomer. I never say that one right. King of Elam. We know Elam. Elam was one of the sons of Shem. The title king of Goim, Amraphael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Two things to notice about this. It's after Babel. These kings that have arisen, and well, I guess it's not easy to recognize, but these names are not Hebrew. Hebrew is probably the original language. After Babel, people start getting named names that don't make sense in Hebrew. But now in the course of this war, it says the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. This is the same kind of tar that they used to build the Tower of Babel. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, when they fled from the king of Shinar, they fell into these pits. And those who survived fled to the hill country, and those survivors were the ones who went and told Abram, your nephew Lot, has been captured by the king. He brings his Amorite allies with him to rescue Lot. But now this is what Josephus has to say about the building of Babel. The tower was built of burnt bricks cemented together with mortar made of bitumen that it might not be liable to admit water. That's something interesting about tar in lieu of using clay. If God decides to flood the earth again, maybe this structure will survive. This is to say to God, give it your best shot. We're ready for you this time. Josephus says he gradually changed the government into tyranny, that is Nimrod, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. For that he built, he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach, and that he would avenge himself of God for destroying their forefathers. Now, how funny that they moved from the mountain of Ararat, which for a few months was underwater. They move into a valley, one of the lowest plains in the Middle East, and they build a tiny little tower and say, Come at us, God. Good luck. Yeah, right. Exactly. So what were they doing? I'm not totally sold on Josephus' interpretation. I think they were a little smarter than to think they were building a tower big enough to withstand the flood. What was their purpose? In verse 4, once again, they say, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. Now, this conjunction that connects city and tower is just a simple Hebrew vav, which is a logical connector. It can mean and, it can mean but. But here, it's probably the vav speciale, which means and especially. Let us build a tower, but at its center, as the primary feature of this city, let there be a tower. We see that here. This is probably a little more accurate than uh, this artist's rendering. You know, the Tower of Babel was still present in Daniel's day. When Daniel was taken away into Babylon, the Tower of Babel was still there. It wasn't dismantled until Alexander the Great decided he was going to refurbish it, took took it down in order to rebuild it, and then lost his kingdom before he had time to rebuild it. But no, this probably had a different purpose than to withstand a flood. And that's why we see them repeated throughout the earth. 
Once again, when man dispersed from Babel, they took with them their culture. God took their language from them, replaced it with another, but the memory of what they were doing in Babel remained. And when they landed in Central America, in the islands in the South China Sea, they took with them this memory of these temple ziggurats. They built them again. And I think Nimrod knew just what he was doing as well when he built a temple in the center of his city. It wasn't long before this that Noah had built an altar to God. As soon as they got off the ark, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. This was Noah recognizing the sovereignty of God. What better way to attack the sovereignty of God than to take an institution he has created and to corrupt it, to pervert it? Their purpose wasn't to worship God with this altar but it was so that its top would reach into heaven. This is probably where Josephus gets the idea of building a tower tall enough to withstand the flood, especially since it was made to be a waterproof tower. But this probably has a spiritual sense. Once again, with something taken from Babel and spread to every culture in the world. It's known some places as shamanism, Others as simply astrology. Babylon is the center of world astrology as well. The Babylonian zodiac was the first one where they begin to worship the creation instead of the creator. The Babylonian wise men were known as astrologers, stargazers. Their occupation kept them looking in the skies and this availed to them the ability to know when the Messiah was coming. In Daniel 2.48, we see that Daniel was made the chief of the wise men in Babylon. These wise men were the Babylonian astrologers. And in Matthew 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Why did these Babylonian wise men arrive in Jerusalem? Not because their astrology told them that the Messiah was born, but because a prophecy from God handed down through the prophet Daniel was fulfilled. And because of their occupation, they were looking in the stars and God placed a sign near the stars so that they would be looking in that direction already. They would notice something was different. Daniel's prophecy, he says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 72 or 62 weeks. It will be built again with a plaza and a moat and even in times of distress. The beginning of chapter 9, we see that these weeks are actually sets of seven years. These wise men from Babylon, when they saw the fulfillment of this prophecy, moved east to see what exactly, or uh, to see the king that was born in Jerusalem. And how did they know this sign? Because yet another prophet had prophesied this. This one is Balaam, the prophet of Pethor and Padan Aram in the Mesopotamian Valley. When Israel came out of Egypt, so the generation of Israel that's receiving the book of Genesis, that's receiving this information about Babylon, Balaam prophesies, I see him but not now, I behold him but not near, a star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall 
and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. They wanted to see this king. They wanted to see this king who is portrayed as a world conqueror. But now when they left Babylon, back at the dispersion of Babel, they took with them all this astrology. If you've ever eaten at a Chinese restaurant, you probably know what your Chinese zodiac sign is. But the Chinese and the Babylonians are not the only ones to have a zodiac. The Africans have a zodiac. The Mayans took with them a zodiac. Interestingly, just like the Babylonians and the Chinese, the center of their zodiac is a serpent or a dragon. In Peru, they have these Nazca lines, which correlate with the stars and aid in the worship of creation. The First Nations in America and Canada worship creation. The Druids and the Celtics worship creation. In fact, Stonehenge was probably built for the similar purpose as the temple at Babylon. The Egyptians as well built their altars for the purpose of watching the stars, for the purpose of worshiping the creation. Israel, which is being pulled out of Egypt, is told not to participate in this culture that had spread around the world, originating in Babel. Deuteronomy 18.10, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. Israel was supposed to be distinct. Israel was supposed to be separate from these cultures that had necessitated the dispersion at Babel and had spread around the whole world. And they were, but unfortunately they were brought under captivity by Babylon. And we see when they come out of their captivity that they too design an astro astrological chart. It's called the Ein Sephirat. It's found in the Talmud, which was heavily influenced by their expeditions in Babylon. In fact, we might recognize this tree from a similar uh, thing that we found in India, especially back in the 60s. If you were around, I wasn't. You might remember the age of Aquarius brought in from Eastern mysticism, this next stage in human evolution, this way of getting rid of God, this way of finding the God within, as Shirley MacLaine might tell us. You see, this isn't different from what we experience today in our culture. This has spread from Babel, and it has taken root everywhere in the world. Shirley MacLaine says, I could be whatever I wanted to be if I trusted that music, that song, that vibration of God that was inside of me. This wasn't that long ago. And it's the same lie that Satan told in the garden. Serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The same deception that caused the first fall of man takes root in the new world just a hundred years after the flood where God wiped it clean. And rather than using the stars as God had intended them to represent his glory, as Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. When they look up at the stars, they should see their creator. 
not a creation in order to worship, but Romans 1.20 tells us, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they were without excuse. They make as a central feature of their religion, their humanist religion, they make one of God's greatest glories, but instead of giving him glory for it, they worship that creation. Genesis 1.14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse and the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Nowhere here does God give these for the purpose of worshiping. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. If you remember way back to last October, this Hebrew word Isha is not the Hebrew word bara. Bara means to create out of nothing. Isha means to use what has been created to form something new. God uses what he created, space, time, and matter, on the first day to create these stars. And once again, up until the point of Genesis 11, this verb is reserved solely for God. God alone uses his creation to create. The only time a man is the subject of this is when God tells Noah how to make the ark. But this is still being made in God's will. Here is the first time in Genesis 11.4 where we are going to see man decides how he is going to use God's creation. Now Romans 1.20 through the end of the chapter is often used for individuals, but it's actually meant for cultures, for civilizations, for nations. Probably it is intended for this entire civilization from Noah all the way to the end of the age. Romans one twenty one tells us, even though they knew God, and they did, each person getting off the ark knew God. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Could there be a better description of Babel? Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We get intrigued looking at these zodiac signs we see in the Chinese restaurants. People see them in the newspaper. They want to know what their horoscope is for the day. This is all part of the futility of man's thinking. This is part of the rebellion at Babylon. It still continues today. And so seeking to make a name for themselves, to build a tower that reaches up as high as heaven, they succeeded. But it wasn't the tower they thought they would build. Revelation 18.5, at the destruction of Babel, the destruction of Babylon, God tells the prophet John, Babylon's sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Babylon will be destroyed, and all in the effort to make a name for themselves. Let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. As a terrible climax to all of their statements, all of their ungodly statements, they say, let us play creator. Not only will we worship the creation, but we will put ourselves in the place of God. We will decide how creation is used. We will not listen to him. We will make for ourselves a name. Now the Hebrew word for name is Shem. Shem was one of the sons of Noah, but this is not the proper name, Shem. In fact, name isn't just a simple identifier in Hebrew. It is intimately tied with reputation. It can equally be translated 
standing, reputation, fame, even some, the memory of someone. Oops, this is the wrong heading. Back in Genesis 6-4, it was used for those men of renown who were opposed to God. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Babel was an attempt to recreate the rebellion against God before the flood. They wanted the world that God destroyed, and they were going to make it for themselves. And they did get a name. They got a name of renown. Revelation 17, 5 tells us that name, and it tells us that it's a mystery. That until this point, when it was revealed by John, the extent of Babylon's influence wasn't fully understood, but now it is. God has revealed that Babylon is that great city. She is the mother of all harlots and of the abominations of the earth. She is the originator, the progenitor of all rebellion that has taken place on this earth since the flood. Babylon is the root source. Babylon is the city opposed to God. Babylon is the world system that seeks to put a different ruler besides Jesus Christ on the throne of this earth. And it will culminate with the Antichrist, the false Messiah, who will seek to take control of this earth, not to ascribe glory to God, but to ascribe glory to Satan, who energizes him. And this is the battle of the ages that finds its climax in the book of Revelation. It begins in Genesis. And once again, we see their purpose was to directly do against what God had told them. If they don't do all of these things together, they're going to be scattered. And they'll end up doing what God told them to do in the first place. Genesis 10 tells us they failed in their efforts, but they didn't fail to introduce corruption into this world. God did scatter them, and eventually he will destroy them. Jeremiah 51.9 prophesies that future destruction of the Babylon system at the end of this civilization in fact, we even see that in this scattering, God had attempted to heal them. God, even for a time, passed the scepter of rulership over this world to Nebuchadnezzar in the time of the Gentiles that would end when Jesus Christ, the king, comes and takes the kingdoms of this world. God gave Babylon another chance, but Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, Greece, Rome, they all failed. Only King Jesus can rule. Only King Jesus is without sin and without rebellion against God. Jeremiah 51 says, We applied healing to Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us each go to his own country, for her judgment has reached to heaven and towers up to the very skies. How like Babel. The Lord has brought about our vindication, that is Israel, Come and let us recount in Zion the work of the Lord our God. This is a proper come and let us. Come and let us ascribe glory to God for his work, for his justice, for his holiness. It's at the time that this takes place where we get the only Hallel choruses in the entire New Testament. Hallelujah is spread all throughout the Old Testament but only here in Revelation chapter 19 does it exist in the New Testament because God's purposes have come to a climax. His holiness is seen in his judgment. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. 
and the 24 elders who are representatives of us, the church. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Our takeaway today, man tends toward rebellion. Didn't take long at all after the flood. All his efforts are in vain. He will not succeed. Man apart from God is doomed to destruction both in this world and in the world to come. But the righteous will be saved. So who can save us? Not our own righteousness. Not our own attempts to build for ourselves on this world. But only in placing our salvation in the hands of God. In his son Jesus Christ by the blood of his son who paid for the sins so that the world might become savable. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this record of Babel. We thank you that we have been given the privilege of seeing your plan from beginning to end. We see how corruption entered into this civilization and we see how it will go out. And it will go out with a bang and it will go out with your son sitting on the throne of this world. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.